Uh, if you don't mind opening your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, I've desired to talk about, preach on Romans chapter 6 verses uh, 1 to 11. Um, but as you can see from, uh, if you're in Romans chapter 6, verses, the first verse starts with a question. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It starts with a question, and the question Paul raises because of what he's just been talking about. So we will read from chapter 5, verse 12, but... We'll just pass briefly through the previous context of chapter 6 and, and then spend most of our time in Romans 6, uh, verses 1 to 11. But before I read, uh, let's pray. Father, Ah, Father, I thank you. I thank you for being here this morning. Father, I thank you for these brethren, Lord, for these saints, people you've purchased with your own blood. Lord, I thank you. Lord, if the Bible wasn't your word, we would not believe it. Lord, it's so amazing. It's so divine. It is so spiritual. So, Father, I pray, we are dependent on your spirit. Would you please help us this morning as we look at your word, Lord, that you may teach us from your word and that we may believe. Help us, Lord. We look to you. That's why we're here. Lord, these dear brethren have not come to listen to a man, but to be taught from you. So, Lord, I desire to be taught myself. I desire to, be, to benefit from what I'm reading, from what I'll be preaching on. And Lord, would you please help me and help my dear saints this morning. Amen. As I said, I'm going to start reading from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And the reason I'm reading that is because... That provides the context for what Paul talks about in chapter 6. And just even before I read that, um, I think uh, if, if you've been a Christian for a certain amount of time, you know that the book of Romans, though the whole book, though this whole book is special, the book of Romans is even in a unique way special. And, and one of the reasons why it's because Paul here, through the Spirit, goes in great length in explaining some of these great doctrines of our Christian faith. He goes into depth in explaining the depravity of man, all of man. He shows that all of man is under condemnation. And then he goes into great lengths as well to explain justification by faith, that all of us must be saved through faith. And it's at the heels of that that Romans 6 comes in, what 
we may call sanctification. But as Paul will show here, sanctification is not independent from justification. It's not separate. Though they are distinct, yet they are connected and cannot be separated. And that's, that's the context of, of the previous chapters. But our immediate context starts from vice, ver, chapter 5, verses 12, and I'll read. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one's man trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And as you will see, this last part of chapter 5, here, Paul is contrasting Adam and Christ. What, what Adam's sin meant for all of humanity and what Christ's um, righteous life means for all who are in Christ. And I'll keep reading. Verses 17. Verses 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one's man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As I said, I'm only reading this verse to provide context of what we're going to be reading in chapter 6. But the verses I just read shows what, who Adam was, what the sin of Adam means to humanity. And it shows who Christ was, and what the life of Christ means to humanity. So in a sense, there is only two kinds of people, those who are in the first Adam and those who are in the last Adam, in Christ. Those are the only two distinctions between humanity. And that's what God says about humanity. But obviously, you know, just saying that those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ, what's the difference? And that's what these verses just told us. And in summary, we see that sin came through Adam. Sin, we were all, humanity has been affected by the sin of Adam. And because of the sin of Adam, condemnation did come to all humanity. On the other hand, Christ, 
lived a righteous life. And because of his righteous life, there is justification that was brought to those who are in Christ. We see that death reigned through the trespass of Adam, but righteousness reigned in life through Christ. Verses 18, condemnation through Adam, as I said, but life through Christ. Verses 19, the obedience of Adam made men sinners. The obedience of Christ makes men righteous. Verses 20, and this is really the culmination of what Paul is talking about, and it's specifically this verse, verses 20 and 21, that creates the first verse in chapter 6. The first question is really raised specifically from this verse. We see that Paul says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So in one sense, Adam is bringing humanity down. The sin of Adam has brought all of us down. And Christ is meeting Adam and bringing humanity up. Up. Christ, I, th I think, I thought of the song that we sing, when the dark powers had done their worst, Jesus brought victory over the curse. So Christ meets Adam at his worst and raises him up. Christ meets humanity at his worst and raises him up. And that's what Paul say, says in a sense in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we go into chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul himself raises this question. And the reason, as we just saw, is connected to what he just said in verse 20. That the second part of, of verse 20, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There is no man in Adam whose sin is so great that Christ cannot cleanse his sins. And the worse the man is, the greater the power of Christ is shown in the man. So then, we may falsely conclude, as Paul raises the question here, why don't we sin more that the power of Christ may be shown in us more? Do you see how the question is raised? And it's a great question, and it's a good question. Instead of the Holy Spirit leaving that in our own mind, he puts it in the Bible so that we may have the answer to this question. And that's why it's raised here. And Paul, in the following verses, is going to be answering his own questions that he raises here. And before we go into detail, so most of our time is going to be spending from verse 1 to 11 of chapter 6, but let me read it all, and then we'll look at it in detail. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. If you're able to, uh, I'd encourage you to have your Bible in, in your hand since we're going to be looking at these verses and maybe going back and forward from verses 1 to 11. So having your Bible close to your hand on your, on your lap is going to be helpful. As I just, as we just saw, the question has been raised in verse 1, and we saw that that's raised because of what Paul had been saying from chapter 12, chapter 5, verse 12 to 21, but specifically the last two verses of, uh, of uh, chapter 5. And the question was, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because Paul had just said that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now he answers his own question. And the answer is an emphatic no in verse 2. He says, by no means, some translation says, God forbid. Now he does not just answer the question by saying, because one short answer could be yes or no. Yes, continue seeing that grace may abound. Oh no, you cannot continue in sin that grace may abound. But in answering the question, he reveals a tremendous truth. He says, no, we cannot. And he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Other translation says, how can we who died to sin continue in sin any longer? And this truth is what he's going, he's going to explain in the rest of the verses here. And you know, naturally, we may want to recoil from this. Does Paul really mean what he says here? If we pause to think, he says, the reason why you cannot continue in sin, it's because you've died to sin. Now, we understand the expression of death. When someone dies, they cease living. If I die today, y'all are not going to see me, at least for now. So we understand it. And the Bible is, you know, I just uh, another thought that came to my mind. You know, the Bible is simple. You know, you run into people who say, oh, I don't read the Bible. It's too hard to understand. No, the Bible is simple. But are we willing to understand? 
the Holy Spirit will help us. So the, the Bible is not written to make, the, the Lord did not give us this word, a mysterious word that is of no use to us. Nor did he give it to just the pastors, the deacons, the learned. If you don't have a university degree, you can't understand. No, that's not the case. Paul here is writing to people like you and I. He has not even met the Romans yet, as we see in chapter 1. And that emphasizes another truth here. What he's saying applies to all Christians. So when he uses a term like, we have died to sin, so we cannot continue in it, it means what it says. You have died to sin. But he explains it further. I know you have a lot of questions in, in your mind. And it's good. We should have those questions in your mind. But we should be careful that we do not make void what the Bible says because we have some questions. I think that means we need to study further. We need to see what, what, follows, the, what follows this amazing statement that Paul just made, and he will explain. And I venture even to say that he's going to say more amazing things by the end of this section that we're looking here. So he goes on to verse 3. Do you not know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, obviously here, Paul, Paul brings in the ordinance of baptism. As we see in the Bible, the Lord is the one who instituted baptism. And here we have to go on a necessary tangent and talk about baptism a little bit, just because Paul uses it here. Now, one interpretation, wrong interpretation, and that's why we're going to go on this tangent a little bit, of verse 3 could be that dying to sin, be, getting baptized is the same thing as dying to sin. Because Paul had just said that how can we who die to sin still live in it any longer? And then he, he explains that further by saying that, do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Now, but before we talk about baptism a little bit, let's first see the main thrust of verse 3. Now, Paul just said that we died. How did we die? He says that we were baptized into Christ. But how does baptism into Christ equal our death? Because being baptized into Christ means we're also baptized into his death. Now we have to answer the question, what does baptize into Christ means? And that's why we have to talk a little bit about baptism. What does baptism mean? Does baptism mean that you're just being put in the water? And that means you die to sin as we get baptized? No, it's not. Just the, the, the action, the ordinance of baptism isn't what 
proves or, or makes us dead to sin, but that signifies what has already happened to us. And a few, a few, just a couple verses that I don't want you to turn there, but I'll read for you. In 1 Corinthians, it says, mentioned, you know, Paul um, rebuking the Corinthians as there was division among them, one saying that I follow Paul, another follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas. These are the kind of things Paul says. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that, bapt- that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you're baptized in my name. I did, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. But I want you to catch this. Verses, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. As I said, I'm going on a quick tension here to show that we're not saved by getting underwater and out of water as the ordinance of baptism shows. If we, if that really saved the person, Christ, uh, Paul would not have said that for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. If baptism saved, all we would be trying to do is get people to get baptized. But we see that Paul, Paul's primary commission here is not baptism, but to preach the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. And in the same book, 1 Corinthians again, don't turn there, chapter 10. Here he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses. We saw, first of all, the baptism into, into Paul and now the baptism into Moses. What does it mean? The fathers were under the old covenant, the mosaic economy. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sin, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, my point of reading these, these verses here is showing that the action itself, without the true work of the Spirit, is meaningless. Because here we see that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the, and all ate of the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. But then again, he says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So outwardly, they all left Egypt. They were all following Moses. In a physical sense, they were part of Israel. But in a spiritual sense, they were not. The same thing applies to baptism. You can get baptized in the physical sense, but that means nothing if you've not truly, spiritually been baptized into Christ. 
If you're not united with Christ in a spiritual sense, outward physical baptism means nothing. And we can use a similar concept, principle here, is that of circumcision. Paul says again in the book of Romans, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So just like there is a physical circumcision, that means nothing if there has not been a spiritual circumcision. And the same thing applies to baptism here. And so as we read verses 3 and 4 and keep going downwards, let's keep that in mind that when Paul says baptism into Christ means true union, spiritual union with Christ, not the outward ordinance of baptism. And by saying that, we do not make void or make meaningless the ordinance that the Lord has given us. Just like there were Jews who were only circumcised physically, but not in heart, did not make the true Jews who were circumcised in heart to neglect outward circumcision. And it is the same thing for us Christians. We do not neglect baptism. No, we take it seriously. But we understand that it signifies what has happened spiritually and that baptism itself does not save. And so as we read, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been brought in this union with Christ, were baptized into his death? So here Paul starts revealing some of the things that happen to a Christian. And the great theme of these verses is union with Christ. And as we will see, this is not just a theoretical union. This is a reality if you're in Christ. And if you've been united with Christ, what is true of you is that you have died with Christ. The reason, obviously, he's saying we have died with Christ is because he had just said in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? We have died to sin. But Paul, how have we died to sin? He says, but all of you, do you not know if you're in Christ that you were united with him in his death? His death means you died to sin. You're not alive to sin any longer. And that's what he's saying. So he continues on to verse 4. The, what he's saying is only going to keep, he's going to keep going into more details. And praise God that it is so. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, one, one thing I want to point out in verse 4 that we'll keep noting in the following verses is the use of the past tense. He's already used it in, in, in verse 2. Remember, he said that 
Remember in verse 2, he said that how can we who died to sin still live in it? He said, who died? Not are dying. Not keep dying. We died with Christ. Just like Christ died once, and that reality, that truth is going to become more clear in the following verses. That's what happened to any Christian who is in Christ. I say that because many people in our day profess Christ, but are not Christians, according to the Bible. So he says, if you are in Christ, you died. It, happened. it already happened. That's one great truth. Remember, he's the whole point of, of this section that we're looking at. He's trying to prove that a Christian cannot live in sin. And the reason they cannot live in sin, it's because in their past, they have already died with Christ. So he's going to keep using the past tense to prove his, his point here. If it's going to happen in the, in the future, if it keeps happening, then we are not truly dead. We did not really die with Christ. So the use of a past tense is something to note here. And he just said in verse 3 that we were united with Christ in his death. And how so? He says in verse so, in verse 4, we were buried. There goes the past tense again. Therefore with him by baptism into death. Now, why were we buried? Why did we die in Christ? Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, the reason for our dying with Christ, Paul here, he's already explained the union of the believer, and he'll do it more in the following verses, with Christ in his death. And he says, and just as Christ was raised from the dead, now, you might expect here, Paul, at this point to say that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so you also will be raised with Christ in the last day. That's not what he says. Obviously, that's true, but that, that's not the emphasis of this passage. Remember, he's, he's talking about the current life of the believer. So he says, just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That almost doesn't quite fit into the passage. Well, maybe in our mind, but if we let the Bible speak, we'll see that it does fit. Because he had just he's showing how the believer cannot continue in sin. And that the death of Christ, and when we're in Christ, we're united with him in his death, and that the resurrection of Christ means new life for the believer. This newness of life is contrasted with the oldness of life, the walking in sin. He's saying, we walk in newness of life, we do not walk in sin any longer. But the following verses are going to make that more clear. Verses 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Amen. So here, Paul, it's his burden, is to show that we Christians are not just in Christ in part of his redemptive work. 
United with Christ means united with Christ. In death, in resurrection, and life after. And that's what he's showing. If we have been united with him in the death like his, we shall certainly, we shall surely, it is not a question. If you're united with him in his death, you will also be united with him in his resurrection. Now, this resurrection, as we will see, is not pointing to the future resurrection. Yes, it is included. Yes, as Christians, we're going to be resurrected. But the burden of Paul in this passage is to prove, and maybe we can skip a little bit ahead to see how he brings all this passage to conclusion. And that will help us see, understand what he's talking about. Look what verse 10 and 11 says. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. I just skipped to help us understand what he's talking about in the previous verses. But as we've seen also in the preceding verses, what Paul is talking about here, this resurrection of life of Christ is the life of the believer here and now. And that's why we cannot continue living in sin. And that's what Paul is, is, is saying. And that becomes more clearer as we go, as we go on. But before we go on, on, on verse, verse 16, you may say in the middle of verse 5, Paul says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You may say, well, it's a future tense used there. It says, we shall. It's not present. Why is it future? Yes, that's a bit of a difficulty. But if we take it in its context, we will see that the future tense here does not mean future. He uses future tense here just to show that the resurrection happens after death. It's Christ in time was raised after he had died. Resurrection must follow. Death does not come before death. And so if and 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 look at your Bible and see how verse 5 is connected to verse 4. He had just said that we that Christ, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he's proving that we cannot walk in sin. We must walk in the newness of life. And he follows on, we too might walk in newness of life because, he says, for, because he's connecting to the previous, to the previous verse. We have, we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Remember, he had just said that the newness of life is enabled by the resurrection of Christ. And if this resurrection of Christ, if he said we shall certainly be united, if he's only talking about future and not talking about the current life, then that makes void the previous, the, the previous points he's making that we cannot walk in sin. That's another 
way to show that this we shall certainly isn't talking about primarily the future. Yes, the future is included, but this verse is talking about primarily the current life. And the following verses will also show that. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. I mean, as I said earlier, we may be tempted to take off the edge what Paul said in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Does he really mean what he says? But if we do not take him at his word here, we're certainly going to try to compromise what he says afterwards. And verse 6 is an example of that. If you say that verse, if you take away from the reality of verse 2, you must also take away from the reality of verse 6. Because verse 6 says that we know that our old self was crucified with him. The old man who was a slave to sin was crucified with Christ once and for all just like Christ doesn't keep getting crucified over and over again unfortunately we've most of us been guilty of saying the old man in me the Bible says the old man was crucified with Christ if you're a Christian this morning the old man has died and how did he die we must remind ourselves, it's not by your own action. It's that Christ took on the old man and died with the old man. Your old man, because as a Christian you're united with Christ, your old man was crucified with Christ. And why? He says, in order that the body of sin, guess to emphasize that word again, with him, all of this is only true because we are in Christ. All of this becomes true of a Christian because a Christian is united with Christ. Separate him from Christ, he's the old man, the old Adam, dead in sin, under condemnation. United with Christ, many things. All of Christ, all that Christ did now becomes a reality for us. And so he says the old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, the, the reason he gives that the old man was crucified here is that the body of sin, he actually gives two reasons. One, he says that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. One implication, one result of the old man dying is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. 
Some translations use, use the word that the body of sin might be destroyed. That's not a correct translation. The true word here, and I tried to find some synonyms, other ways the, the, the word is translated in the scriptures. That the body, another way to say is that the body, the body of sin might be done away with, may be rendered inert, inoperative, that the body of sin may cease, that the body of sin might be put away. But I'm explaining what happened to the body of sin, but what is the body of sin? Now, this is actually, was probably the hardest thing in studying the body of sin. Many commentators disagree here what that means. One possible translation here is explaining sin as a body. Not, not my physical body, but the body of sin, the mass of sin, that, that the sin might be put away. However, it seems like that's not a good translation or explanation, exposition of the body of sin because as we see, it's the same word used in verse 12 when Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And here, Paul is clearly talking about our physical body. What does it mean then? The body of sin. I think here, for the sake of time, and as I think if you look at the, at the rest of the chapter and the following verses, the body of sin means the body, our body. Of sin might be brought to nothing, but it says that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I guess another difficulty that enters here to help you um, uh, follow me here is that the body is called the body of sin. One question that raises is, is the body, is my body, my members inherently sinful? Is sin a material thing? Obviously, sin is not just material. You know, if sin was material, if sin was in the body, then, like many false religion, we would try to torture our bodies, that we may not sin. But that's not the case. I think a correct understanding of this verse is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing is Remember, he just said that the old man was crucified with Christ. And in the last part of verse 6, he says that, so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. The body of sin was brought to nothing so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin, meaning that we were, talking about Christians, at one time in the past, before our crucifixion of the old man with Christ, we were enslaved to sin. But now that we've been crucified, the old man has been crucified with Christ, and one of the results of, the, of being crucified with Christ is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. The body of sin, our bodies were held captive by sin. See, before we were in Christ, the body is also being used to only commit sin. And we can see that further when he gets to verses uh, 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. See, he's saying do not present this is kind of a tangent a little bit, but I think it helps us understand verse 6. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for, for righteousness. Our bodies, our members, before our crucifixion with Christ, we did, we did not have, we could not obey this command that he's giving here. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteous. Our body was held captive to sin. Sin made us do what it wanted to do. And that was sin. That was unrighteousness. Sin against God. So the end of verse 6 says, so that we will no longer be enslaved. We were enslaved. Our body, everything in us was enslaved to sin. But now, he says, since the old man was crucified, the body of sin, the body as tyrannized by sin, the body as obeying sin, has been brought to nothing. Meaning the body isn't enslaved to sin any longer. Sin isn't tyrannizing the body any longer. So the body has not changed. It's the same. But the master of the body, because the body only follows who we are. And before we were enslaved to sin, now the body of sin has been brought to nothing. The body is described as being the body of sin because before Christ, all it did was sin because it was enslaved to sin. But now that we're not enslaved to sin, our body isn't enslaved to sin. So we're not, our body isn't under the tyranny of sin, under the mercy of sin. And the, follow, the last part of verse 6 explains that further so that we will no longer, as I've been saying, enslaved to sin. And just quickly going on to verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is only confirming what he just said. He's now expounding on why we've been set free from sin. Remember, he started by saying that we died to sin in verse 2. How did we die to sin? He said that if we have died, now this is not just a kind of general death. It's a dying with Christ. It's the death like that of Christ. It's our union with Christ in his death. And if we have being united with Christ in his death, as you already said, then we have been set free from sin, as he says in verse 7. And verse, the first part of verse 8 repeats, in a sense, the same thing that he's been saying. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We can summarize verses Five and six as dying with Christ. 
the negative part of our redemption, not negative in a sense that it's no, it, it's bad, negative in the sense that it's, in a sense, inaction. We can, another way to help us understand uh, this section of scripture is that verses 6 and 7 are an explanation of the first part of verse 5. And verses 8, 9, and 10 explain the second part, the second half of verse 5. For if we have been united with him, reading from verse 5, in his death, in a death like his, and verses 6 and 7 explain what being united with Christ in his death mean, is that being united in his death means that the old man was crucified. The body of sin, the body as conditioned by sin, the body as a slave of sin, the body sinning, only doing the sinning, that has been brought to nothing. And we're not enslaved to sin any longer. However, the following verses, 8 and 9 and 10, now he starts explaining the positive part. We've not only died. Christ did not only die, but he was raised by the power of God. What does that mean for the believer? And that's what he explains in the verses that follow. I think I've run out of time. But so I will summarize what I've talked about, and Lord willing, next time I can talk about the following verses. Um, but in summary of what we've talked about, by no means complete because the section, the, the section continues here. One thing to notice here, when Paul, in Paul proving that the Christian cannot continue in sin, some of the things he does not say and where maybe we go wrong sometimes or often, unfortunately, we can start by telling a person, you cannot continue sin. You must fight harder. A Christian is one who fights hard. That's why he cannot continue in sin. That's true. A Christian fights against sin. But that's not the primary reason a Christian cannot be enslaved to sin. The primary reason the Christian cannot be enslaved to sin is because he has died to sin. Is not dying, will not die. It was a once and for all action. Because of his union with Christ, the old man was crucified with Christ. And that's where Paul goes to prove, in a sense, from verse 1 to 11, you'll see he tells nothing of the Christians in terms of do this that you may not be enslaved. No, he says, this is why you will not be enslaved. You are a new person in Christ. So we must start there. It is, it is very important, even for us. It's not a matter of just proving. Unfortunately, we can also fall into... I'm just going to fight against this heresy. I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to prove it wrong. That's not, Paul isn't concerned about proving some theoretical, winning some theoretical debate. He's talking about reality. 
The reality of a Christian is that he has died to sin. And that affects our life. And it cannot be anything other than that. The following verses would have proven that. And maybe just quickly talking about verses 10 and 11. For the death he died, he died sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Verses, verses 11 does not say, does not command the Christian to, you must also die to sin. No, he's saying you must realize that you've died to sin. And there is a world of a difference between I'm commanding you to die to sin or I'm telling you to realize that you've died to sin. One is a fact, is a reality. You're telling, he's telling us the reality is if you're in Christ, you're dead, you're finished with sin. The other, if you tell a person, no, you must die to sin, then they are not. Then they are continuously trying to die to sin. That's not the life of a Christian. Obviously, I know that there are more questions that are, aren't answered in this passage, and we did not get to the game, but I trust that the Lord will use whatever we did. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, what can we say but thank you? We are grateful, Lord. We are grateful that we are united with you, that we were united with you in your death and your resurrection. And that means newness of life. Oh, Lord, thank you for what you've done. Father, thank you for sending your son. We are grateful. We can never thank you enough. Thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.